listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the book of Acts, how Christians live. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com. All right, Grace Fellowship, are we ready to receive from God's Word, ready to hear from God, ready to put God's Word into action? Are we ready today for that? That is exactly what we're going to do, courtesy of God's Word. Let's go directly to the source, Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Acts chapter 12, verse 1, as we continue our series, verse by verse, through the entire book of Acts, and when we're done, We will have covered every verse in the entire book of Acts, not just for the sake of going through an exercise, but for the sake of helping us exercise biblical faith. What does it look like when an individual, what does it look like when a family, what does it look like when Christians are on fire for Jesus Christ? Well, we need to go no further than the word of God in the book of Acts itself, because we need to understand that each and every one of us is to be Acts chapter 29. There are only 28 chapters in the book of Acts. But the idea is that your life and mine, our lives together, are to be the continuation of the book of Acts, all of the things that Jesus is continuing to do throughout the earth through we, his people, through his people. Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. That's James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. One of them now has been killed by the sword, either beheaded or run through with the sword. And when he, Herod, saw that it pleased the Jews, see how pressing fear pressure is? Concern about peers and doing what people want rather than God, even a king, can be influenced by fear pressure or peer pressure. And if if a king can be influenced, so can you. You need to be on guard against peer pressure, being concerned about the opinions of people more than the opinion of God. When he, Herod, saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. This is a deja vu experience here because something else dastardly happened during the Passover, during the festival of unleavened bread when Jesus was arrested illegally, even though it was illegal, he was arrested and illegally tried by the Sanhedrin and condemned to die on a cross, even though Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice. He wasn't murdered, it wasn't against his will, it was according to the will and the purpose of God Almighty so that you could be the beneficiary, I could be the beneficiary of his sinless sacrifice. This is a deja vu experience that in a similar way, during the Passover, this is taking place. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ here when this is taking place, it could have the potential of creeping you out and reminding you of how things went down not very long ago with Jesus. This was during the days of unleavened bread, verse four. And when he had seized him, when he had seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers, 16 soldiers. 
to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. I want you to take note of that in the United States of America, where we are so desperately in need of a real movement of prayer. Most churches are in need of a real movement of prayer. And guess what? When you accumulate all of the individual churches throughout the nation, it shouldn't be any surprise that our nation is likewise in need of a real movement of prayer. It's good for us to take note of what was happening in the face of hardship, in the face of persecution, that when the church had its back up against the wall, God's people didn't sit down and shut up, they got on their knees and they cried out in earnest prayer, asking for God to intervene. I want you to take this verse, verse five, and I want you to highlight it. I want you to commit it to your attention for the remainder of our time and even after our time, because it becomes incredibly significant. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Verse six, now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, his wrists or his hands are chained, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. Similar to Luke chapter two, verse nine, Luke is the author of Acts, Luke is the author of the gospel that bears his name. And when the shepherds were in the field, something similar happened. An angel of the Lord appeared and a bright light enveloped them. It's very similar kind of a situation here. A light shone in the cell. He, the angel, struck Peter on the side, nudged him, woke him up saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Now in the original language, there's nuances that come out in the verb tenses that we don't always get in the English. So every once in a while, whenever it's especially beneficial, I try to bring that to our attention. And this is one of those instances where in verse seven, the angel says, get up quickly. It's like, get up, make a decisive action, make it happen. Here in verse eight, when he says, wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the nuance of the Greek word that's used there is, I want you to get up immediately and I want you to follow me and to keep following me. Watch where I'm going and don't lag behind. That's what's presented here. And when, verse nine, when he went out and followed him, and he went out and followed him, he did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Remember, Peter was in a trance earlier, and there was something like a sheet let down before him that said, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Remember, Peter has had experiences with visions before, so it's not unusual. Don't be hard on Peter. He gets a bum rap often. Don't be hard on Peter. It's not unusual for him, again, to be experiencing God through a vision. Verse 10, when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel 
left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Many were gathered together and they were praying. They were calling out to God. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Can you imagine being poor Peter? Hey, how about a little something for the effort? I just got out of prison here. I'm knocking and (laughs) come on now. And it's an amazing reminder for us of how when we ask God, when we call out to God, be careful, God knows how to give you what you ask for. As long as it's in accordance with what his good, pleasing, and perfect will is, God knows how to give his people what they ask for. They said to her, so Rhoda reports this, recognizing Peter's voice in verse 14, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he doesn't want to cause a commotion. After all, a jailbreak has happened here, right? He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James, that's the brother of Jesus, and to the brothers and the sisters. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter because the soldiers were in big trouble. If a prisoner escaped under their watch, you would not escape the ruler who was watching you. And this is exactly what becomes of them. Verse 19, after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. A little bit of face time for Herod as he has been royally, no pun intended, embarrassed after 16 well-armed, well trained soldiers let an unarmed citizen go. So he goes to Caesarea, which is his headquarters. Verse 20, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, how'd you like that name? The king's chamberlain or his chief of staff They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of man. Immediately, An angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. This is the purpose of this whole story. 
and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now, John Mark becomes significant in the book of Acts, as we're going to see together. Barnabas and Saul, notice that they're introduced as Barnabas and Saul. They're being introduced here as we're going to now look at some of their ministry throughout the remainder of the book of Acts. And then we're going to see a transition take place where Barnabas fades away and Saul, who becomes the mighty super apostle, comes to preeminence in the church and is being used by God. We're going to see him being used by God mightily and powerfully. So a transition is taking place. But before we get to Acts chapter 13, we want to dissect a little bit Acts chapter 12. I hope you understand that we don't exhaust each chapter, each section when we go through it. We don't have enough time to exhaust each section and each chapter. This is just enough to whet your appetite that you would go home and that you would crack open the word of God for yourself and look at it more deeply Ask God to open your eyes and to transform your life more deeply through your meditation on the word of God. Christian meditation is different than meditation in other religions because we have an object that we meditate upon and we have a person that we surrender to. The object is the word of God. We use the word of God to meditate upon, to saturate ourselves in, to marinate in. And that's what the object is in terms of the book that we use, and the object of our affections through it all is God the Father himself. And we are grateful, we should be grateful for the gift of the Holy Spirit who enables us to pray, teaches us how to pray. Prayer is something that we learn. It's not something we do automatically. So don't be discouraged if you don't know how to pray. The great aim of the Holy Spirit is to teach you how to pray to show you how to pray, to enable you how to pray, to enable you to become someone you don't become naturally because prayer is a supernatural endeavor where we as natural mortal beings submit to the Holy Spirit, meditate on the word of God, and engage in something supernatural that actually partners with God. This is what we're seeing here in Acts chapter 12, a partnering between God and his people We don't totally understand this side of eternity, but it's true, it's real, it's significant, and God is calling you, he's calling me to partner with him. An amazing thing about this particular passage in scripture with the situation of Herod is that it's supported by a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. Josephus records this instance where Herod came out in this very area and put on his royal robes and he describes them as being intertwined with silver. And he says that he came out early in the morning and as the sun began to shine, it glistened off of his royal robes. And as he spoke, the people were mesmerized and they were worshiping him in a way that's similar to how it's recorded right here, how Luke records it in Acts chapter 12. And it says that his stomach, his intestines became agitated, his insides became agitated, and for a period of five days, he became ill, and then he died. 
Very similar to the way Luke records it. Now it says immediately here. Sometimes when the word says immediately and doesn't provide all of the details, you might say, well, it says immediately here that he was struck, struck down and eaten by worms. Well, immediately he was stricken by the angel. And it could have been a few days that he was ill and grieving and sick. The point of the matter is that God struck him because he did not give glory to the living and the true God. And it's interesting that the account is recorded by another historian, and even if it weren't recorded by another historian, it helps us understand that God means what he says and says what he means. He does not, he will not share his glory with another. And it's also been said that he who laughs last, laughs best. When you mess with God's people, you mess with God. Remember, Saul understood this when he was on his way to Damascus and Jesus appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul's response was, who is it, Lord? Who are you, Lord? And the response was, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. To persecute the church is to persecute God Almighty, God himself. And when you persecute the church, when you persecute God, God has a way of not overlooking that offense. And here, Herod gets his just desserts and is stricken by Almighty God. Now let's back up here a little bit and analyze a little bit what's happening here in the book of Acts in chapter 12 so that you can digest it in your own life, in your own family, that we can digest it here in our church and walk away with some practical application that would change us here in the 21st century. The idea is that the book of Acts not only has exceptions within it, there are exceptions, but the idea presented in the book of Acts is that it is filled first and foremost primarily with examples. The book of Acts is filled with examples of how people of faith are to live in the face of difficult, dark, dastardly times. That is the primary purpose of the book of Acts. Even though there are exceptions, the overall thrust of the book of Acts is to teach us, no matter whether we're living in the 21st century or any century, any century since the first century, the book of Acts is here for us to understand how we as God's people are to walk in a manner that's pleasing to Almighty God, that partners with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was and is and is to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. That, my friends, is what the book of Acts is all about. And here, here we have a great example of the church being persecuted, of the sovereignty of God, of the faithfulness of God's people, whether their lives are taken or whether their lives are spared. We see the faithfulness of God's people and we see the passion of God's people for their Lord and Savior and for his agenda. The book of Acts is filled with examples of God's people being passionate about their God and passionate about God's kingdom agenda. And the question for you, the question for me today, the question for us is, where is our passion? Where's our passion in the 21st century? 
in the United States of America for God and for his agenda. We're facing difficulty and hardship and pressure. Dastardly dark times today in the United States of America. Perhaps on such a widespread scale, geographically and in terms of the population, unlike any other time in our nation's history. There's racial division. There's moral decline. There's financial difficulty. There's physical calamity, whether it's through Hurricane Harvey or this other hurricane that now we're hearing is out there in the Atlantic, out there in the Caribbean, stewing and brewing, or whether it is from North Korea. Did you know that North Korea detonated a hydrogen bomb just a few hours ago? North Korea detonated a hydrogen bomb just a few hours earlier today, triggering a magnitude 6.3 earthquake, the aftershocks of which have yet to be determined. There's war in the world right now. There is rumors of war. We're facing challenges where God's people, we should be on our knees. We should be united. We should be calling out to God in united prayer because this nation at this particular time in history needs a real movement of the Spirit of God. In fact, we need movements of the Spirit of God. They need to be happening in every single outpost, every single church throughout this nation. You know, there's only one church. There's only one king and there's only one kingdom. There are many outposts for that king and for that kingdom. We happen to be one of them right here. Any church that believes in the biblical Jesus, any church that embraces the Bible as God's inspired word, all 66 books, I don't care if you're conservative or if you're on the liberal side in terms of social issues, if you believe in Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, if you haven't redefined him in your own image, if you haven't recreated him in your own image, and you believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God and you're not playing with the Bible, if you're not a member of the nighttime Bible reading society, reading the Bible at night, lights off, sunglasses on, missing portions of scripture and selectively choosing portions of scripture. Because if you do that, you might as well read the Bible at night, lights off, one eye closed, sunglasses on. That kind of approach to reading scripture is cockamamie. You're going to miss the real Jesus. You're going to miss the entire counsel of God's word. You're going to unintentionally recreate God in your own image. And you don't have the right to do that. I don't have the right to do that. What needs to happen in this nation is the same thing that needs to happen in this church. The nation is simply the sum of all of our parts. We need a mighty real movement of the spirit of God, movements of the spirit of God in this nation in this church. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but I had better things to do this morning. Could have had a much more delicious breakfast than I had. For Pete's sake, we live in an area where I have multiple choices to get farm fresh bacon, farm fresh sausage. We have our own chickens and they free range. You had better things to do today 
than to come here or to listen, whether it's by radio or by podcast, than to somebody simply talk about God. Talk is cheap. What we need in this church and in our churches in the United States of America are mighty movements of the Spirit of God, the kind of faith that we see here in the book of Acts, where when God's people are down, they're not out. They use it as an opportunity to pray and to ask God and to seek him and to call out to him. And I'm not so sure that we yet in the United States of America are getting the message of urgency that is all around us, that desperate times require a desperate response on the part of God's people. Look at what the church is doing here in the book of Acts, and I want you to ask yourself if your life is characterized by this kind of faith with legs. I want you to ask yourself if you think that your church that you participate in is characterized by this kind of faith, faith with legs. I want you to ask yourself, I want you to ask if your family, I want you to ask if our family, if you're listening by podcast or radio, if your life, if your family, if your church is characterized by this kind of dependence upon Almighty God. Because the fact of the matter is that James has been run through or beheaded, he's been killed with a sword. In Mark chapter 11, it's this James and his brother John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of uproar, the sons of thunder who come to Jesus and say, could we sit at your left and your right when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they say, yes. And Jesus says to them, you are going to drink of this cup, the cup of persecution. And we know that John, the son of Zebedee, goes on to write first, second, and third John in the book of Revelation, Tradition says that he was boiled in oil because they could not kill that guy, but he certainly knew persecution. James, so it seems, his brother, didn't get off that easily. Loses his life, killed with the sword, and yet Peter is sent off to prison and miraculously is released by the same God who allowed James to be killed. Sooner or later in your life, you're going to have to wrestle with this issue of the sovereignty of God. Why is it that God allows some people to go through tremendously difficult times while other people seem to just get off scot-free? Why is it that some people lose their lives for Christ while others are sent to prison and spend the rest of their lives there, and yet others are sent to prison and are miraculously released like Peter. Why? If you're a real follower of Jesus Christ, you will at one point or another in your life come face to face with the issue of the sovereignty of God. God knows what he's doing. He does what he knows is right to accomplish his kingdom agenda. From here, from our vantage point looking up, we don't totally understand the ways of God. But from God's vantage looking down, God is always on time, always does what is right, always advances his agenda, and always brings glory to his name. So we don't understand. We don't understand why James was killed, but Peter simply goes to jail and then is released. 
But here's something that we can walk away with that we should understand today. That you need to understand in your life, I need to understand in my life, we need to rediscover this truth in the United States of America. Whether we are on a mountaintop or in the valley, we are to worship and serve the Lord. Whether we're going through a great time of blessing or a tremendous time of difficulty, we are to worship and serve the Lord. Whether our lives are in jeopardy or whether we are being set free, we are to worship the Lord. The overall objective of your life is to be faithful to God regardless of what you are facing. God is sovereign. He is on the throne and will remain there. The question is, are you being faithful in the meantime? It doesn't matter if your life is in jeopardy. James was faithful to the point of death. It did not matter if Peter was thrown into prison. In fact, what is Peter doing with a chain on his left hand and a chain on his right hand? What is Peter doing? He's sleeping. He's overcome. He knows that James was killed. He knows what happened to Jesus. He knows that people are coming to know Jesus in droves and he knows what Herod intends to do with him and yet the peace of God that surpasses all human comprehension is so welling up within him while he's in the midst of prison that he does not care whether his life is taken or whether he escapes. He doesn't know and neither does the church know what's going to become of Peter. But the church is earnestly, devoutly, dedicatedly praying passionately to the Lord and asking for God to intervene. The church did not know what was going to become of Peter, but the church knew that Jesus would be faithful to his own reputation and that God's people could trust him for his glory to go forth, the glory of Jesus to go forth, whether in death or in life, sickness or in health, mountaintop or in the valley. And we need to understand that again in the United States of America. We serve almighty God. We preach the gospel. We're true to Jesus, not because of the blessings we receive, but despite Whatever blessings we may receive, and if your life is lost because you're faithful to Jesus, then you get the biggest blessing of all, going down in a blaze of glory, pointing people to him, and showing people that it doesn't matter what happens to me this side of eternity because my eternal destiny has been settled by the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What can people do to me? The answer is absolutely nothing. Nobody can do anything to you unless God the Father says, you have my approval. This is the story in the book of Job. This is the story throughout the Bible. This is the story in the book of Acts. Peter gets out of prison miraculously. James was taken by the sword. It does not matter. You have to settle the issue in your own life. As for me and my house, 
We're going to serve the Lord. We're going to do that today. We're going to do it throughout this day. We're going to do it tomorrow, throughout tomorrow, throughout this week, and for the rest of my life, for the rest of our lives, we're going to serve the Lord with faithfulness, regardless of what happens. God is sovereign. He knows what you're facing. And what's really the bigger issue in your life and mine is not the immediate circumstances of what you're facing that you can see. There are things involved in your faithfulness to Jesus, in my faithfulness to Jesus, in our faithfulness to Jesus that are bigger than the circumstances that you see. They're bigger than the perspective that you see. What is at stake is whether or not you're going to give glory to God because other people are looking at you. In fact, angels are looking at you. Look with me at the book of Hebrews chapter one, the last verse. Hebrews chapter one, verses 13 and 14. And to which of the angels has he ever said, God, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Speaking about Jesus, he's not even compared to an angel. He's greater than angels. Are they, verse 14, angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That's what an angel is. And that's why they say, when Peter comes to the door, and is knocking. That's why they say it's his angel. There's this understanding that angels are sent by almighty God to help God's people. And this is what they're thinking is taking place here in Acts chapter 12. That perhaps couldn't be, could it? That God somehow has answered our earnest, passionate prayers? I mean, is that really possible? That our passion for God expressed by our unified passion and calling out to him together is actually something God can use to set people free? You better believe it. Look at what it says here in Acts chapter 12, verse 17, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. The Lord used an angel, but it was the Lord who brought him out of prison. It's important for us to understand that God sets people free. And prayer somehow is a partnership with God toward that end. I don't understand how. I don't even understand why. God doesn't need a single one of us to move a solitary mountain. And yet he invites each and every one of us, he's inviting you, he's drawing you, he's wooing you, he's pursuing you. I think he's wooing our entire nation, one church at a time, one Christ follower at a time, one Christ following family at a time, to help us understand that prayer is one of the primary things that God's people do if they're serious about partnering with God. Let's go back to verse five here again. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. You know, a church is not passionate about God. Listen to what we need to hear. A church is not passionate about God until her people 
are passionate together and calling out to their God in prayer. We really need to hear this. A church, a group of believers in Jesus Christ, a local church, is not passionate about God until they are united passionately coming together in prayer to seek their God and advance his purpose. I'm not sure that we're really hearing this message. I don't want to just talk to the nation. I want to speak to us right here and right now. I have lovingly had it, and you have too, with a weak brand of Christianity that has a form of godliness without the power of God. I have lovingly had it, and you have too, of going through the motions of American churchiality, churchianity, American churchianity, where we go through the motions, come and hear messages, read our Bibles, and we look at the tremendous dichotomy between what we're reading and how we're living. You need to become a person of prayer. Listen, life is too short to be passionate about something more than God. It's too short. You can practice a seven-day revolution where every day of the week you have your Bible at your nightstand. You begin your day by reading the Bible with a commitment to putting it into action. There's the key. You put it into action all through the day, and at the end of the day, you come back to that same bed, that same nightstand, that same Bible. You open it up again. You pray, and you ask God to help you to put it into action, and you have a commitment to Almighty God. You do that seven days on the eighth day. Recommit yourself for another seven days, and you know what? Your whole life will be transformed just by doing that for seven days and recommitting yourself. It's not difficult. In our families, we need personal private time with our families where we are praying together. This means that most families are too busy. You've got seven days in the course of a week. At least one of those days during some time in the course of that week, you need to take time as a family where you're calling out to God and praying together, interceding, confessing sin to each other, with each other, and becoming a family of prayer. You know, most couples don't even pray together as couples. Isn't it high time that you began to pray with your spouse? Come on now. Isn't it high time that you began to pray with your spouse? What in the world are you waiting for? What are we waiting for? And let me just be honest with you here for a moment. We have a prayer time at 8.30 here at Grace Fellowship. 8.30 in room 200. And then we have another one at 10.30 right here. You just come down to the beginning before the service and you can pray and you can call out to the Lord. In a church this size, we should have dozens and dozens and dozens of people coming together and calling out to the Lord. You do not have to do it every single Sunday. Choose one out of four, one out of five Sundays where you come a little bit early and you call out with others and you earnestly do what we're reading about here in the book of Acts. You earnestly call out to the Lord. Listen, life is short. 
Life is happening. What else has to happen in our nation to get our attention? And I don't want anybody to say to me, you are on fire today, Mike. You are on fire, Pastor Mike. It is not about your pastor being on fire. It's about you being on fire for God. It's about us being a house of prayer for all nations. It is not about me preaching sermons. It is not about creating podcasts. It's not about creating beautiful music and all of those things I hope you enjoy. I hope that you're getting encouraged and challenged and built up every Sunday and in between every Sunday. However, what it is about, your life and mine, is supposed to be about lives that are intimate with the Lord Jesus Christ. Lives that are really praying. Lives that are earnestly calling out to him. A church is not serious about their God and Savior. A church is not serious about the vision, the mission of their God and Savior until a church becomes united in prayer. We should have. You say, Are you guilt tripping me? Listen, we are so not used to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit that we attribute guilt to conviction all the time. If this is speaking to you, then so be it. We should have, by this time, dozens and dozens of people calling out to the Lord. This church should be a spiritual furnace with the prayers of God's people going up to Almighty God like incense. We are giving you a softball. We are tossing you this tremendous opportunity at 8.30 to come into room 200 and to call out to the Lord and to pray to him. Jesus said, my house will be called the house of exposition? No. Jesus said, my house will be called the house of beautiful music? We have some beautiful music. Jesus said, my house will be called the house where there's tremendous LED lights up there. (laughs) Of all the things Jesus could have said that he wants his church to be characterized by, and by the way, the church is the sum of individual Christian lives. That means your life has to be characterized by it as well. Is a house of prayer. That's how all nations become impacted. A house of prayer for all all nations. You need to make fundamental changes in your life, in your schedule. The issue is this. What is God saying to you about your prayer life at this particular time in history? When are we going to take the time to adjust our lives and adjust our schedules so that we are doing, we are behaving as the early church behaved. When they were earnestly calling out to the Lord in united prayer and they were seeing God move miraculously and powerfully. If you don't believe that we need to see God move miraculously and powerfully in the United States, you are not paying attention. And I hope in a greater way than there will be repercussions of the magnitude 6.3 earthquake that was triggered earlier today in North Korea by that hydrogen bomb that was dropped. 
I hope before Almighty God that there are aftershocks of this particular message in your life. You need to go home this month. You need to go home today and this week. And you need, not not you should, you need to. You need to figure out what is keeping me. What is keeping me? What affection, what falsely presented deception is making me think that it is more than the only life I'll ever get this side of eternity and my ability to make a conscious, willful choice of sacrifice that I am going to become, by the grace of God, a man, a woman, a boy or a girl who is passionately walking with Jesus as expressed through prayer. There are a lot of things that we could do as a church, a lot of things that we could be known for, but none of those things are as important as, as significant as, as life-changing, as chain-breaking, as being men and women who really pray, who are passionate about God, meeting together passionately with each other and calling out for God to move. Life is happening. Your life is happening right now. I believe that God is speaking to you. Right now, I believe that God is speaking to you. He has been speaking to you before we even got here today about your prayer life. He's been speaking to you about this church and how this church needs to become a house of prayer, a furnace for Almighty God, and how you need to be part of that furnace. And you know exactly who you are because I'm going to ask you right now to get up out of your seat and stand. I am lovingly tired, and I suspect that you are too, of being a weak church when we could be a powerful church, walking in humility before Almighty God. Your life needs to change. I'm not talking at a 50,000-foot level here, everybody. I'm talking about you're going to go home today and you're going to go home this week and you're going to say, honey, you look at your spouse, you look at your kids, you look at your parents and you say, if it's going to be, it's up to me. Yeah, the National Week of Repentance is coming up in a few weeks, but we're not going to wait till then. This church, Grace Fellowship, if we're going to be a church of not just local, but regional, national and international impact, we ain't going anywhere until we become people of prayer. And I know you don't know how to pray because I did not know how to pray. I do not know how to pray until I get together with other believers in Jesus. And you know what? Fire begets fire. You did not know how to walk when you first tried and now look at you. You need to come at 8.30 Some Sunday of the month, every month, you say, well, I've got whatever it might be. Guess what? We've all got that. Everybody thought someone was doing something, so nobody did anything. I'm lovingly tired, and you are too. I'm just going to church and talking about church. When we could talk about the kingdom of God, we could spread the kingdom of God, and the church will take care of itself. It's time for you, and it is time for me to make the adjustments that we need to make in our lives and to be committed. I want to encourage you. 
Don't just say, well, I've been to the prayer meeting once and I'm just gonna give up. I want you to make a commitment for the next 12 months. 12 months, pick a Sunday, any Sunday, and come. Come to room 200. Let's fill that place to overflowing where room 200 is too small. That we need another room to get together. Then we will be a church to be reckoned with in the heavenly realms. That's how God will use this church to be one not only of local impact, but regional and national and international impact. Go home and talk to your spouse and say, we need to have a prayer time where we're calling out to the Lord. And you better believe that you will be tempted with all kinds of distractions and diversions. But your mantra and my mantra needs to be the same. As for me and my house, for such a time as this, ain't nothing gonna keep me from calling out to my God and my Savior. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. You can also invite Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.